Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. I am joined today in the middle of results season by Mark Robinson, company's editor. How are you, Mark? Very well, thank you, John. Yeah, really? Well, yes. Not, not well, feeling the, a bit pressured by not, the uh, deluge. Not at all. Uh, it's, a, it's a privilege to be able to thumb through these results every day. Yeah, sure. How many is it in the last two weeks? Fifth, must be 50 pages. It was, uh, yeah, the last couple of weeks. Another, we've got another 20-odd pages this week, and then it keeps on going for a while. We may have even covered a few more uh, mid-caps than we did uh, last year, too. But anyway, I shall have a look when all this is finished at the stats. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure it feels bigger than last year. Yeah, it does. It does. And, of course, I'm joined by uh, the writer of this week's cover feature, Harriet Clarfield. How are you, Harriet? I'm fine, thank you. How have you enjoyed your... Is this your first big results season? Um, my first full-year results season. So I joined just before the half-years. Oh, So you got this so, yeah. so you, September year end. So you had a, exactly. a baptism of fire. And then... Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, then, and this, is the, this is the one that's, that's most painful. The full years is the most painful. Yeah, it's quite intense, but I'm enjoying it. It means I get to look at a lot of different companies, so... Let's, me. let's have this conversation again next year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll feel differently. Well, it's, it's vitally important as well because we build a, a narrative uh, relating to the companies over time and so it's something to really look forward to. It also gives us a chance to hit, uh, read some of the comments from uh, from our subscriber base as well. Yeah, indeed. It's, a, it's an interesting time. Lots of, uh, you know, uncertainty about yeah. where everything's heading. I mean, my, my general view of the results is that they, they are largely good yes. in the sectors where you would, where there haven't been any sort of broader issues, like retail, for example. No, where, 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 where there have been problems are uh, specific to, to companies. And uh, uh, I don't, I mean, we get the odd mention about Brexit and there's also talk now, of course, with the UA, US trade sanctions and, you know, re- Although that's a very recent thing. I mean, that's a week. It has. So that, that doesn't sharpen these results. It, it might sharpen the share prices. Cu- yeah, exactly. It's come out over the last couple of weeks or so. But, um, yeah, I guess, as ever, it comes down to specific issues uh, more than any general shift in the the economic outlook. Indeed. So, so basically today we've got on the podcast, we're going to come to Harriet's uh, excellent feature uh, in a minute, which is about regulation. Just as we've had a deluge of results, we've had a, we are looking forward to a deluge of regulation this year. <laughs> Some people are looking forward to it. <laughs> well, no, I don't think anyone's looking forward to it. Yeah, but we need to understand it, and that's what you've uh, you've helped us to do this week. Um, but really, I think it's a good opportunity to reflect upon result season so far. Let's talk through a little, a few of the results, and yeah, in, in general, I was I was speaking to uh, our news editor Emma Powell, who also covers the banks and the finance section and she was saying that uh, the general theme she's got coming through the banks with a couple of exceptions is that they're in a a better position now the bigger banks in particular because uh, they've got a lot of the pain linked to recapitalization out the way Uh, a lot of the uh, redress stuff is out the way as well yeah there are still legacy issues linked to ppi i think um, not not many they're not what they was no nothing compared to how they were i mean you'd think it's going to drag on for another couple of years or so but uh, we've had the reintroduction of a couple of dividends as well. Uh, unfortunately, RBS wasn't uh, uh, in the fold, and some some analysts had uh, thought they they might come to they they still may. But they, but their results RBS looked decent. Um, yeah, I guess that's it's timing thing. Yeah, the the, the, the dividend is coming. You would say uh, yes, I'd say so. I think Lloyd's was the pick of the bunch, obviously. But the, the general theme is that uh, investors may be able to start looking at the banks again. In something of the light that they, they used to, um, the industry is in, uh, in in flux at the moment. But uh, they seem to have taken all the the strong medicine, and you know it's one to look forward to for the rest of this year as well. 
Uh, Challenger Banks, uh, we, we haven't had, we've had some results from Challenger Banks, yes, not all of them. Yes, yes. Uh, and again, that's an area where it seems the, um, the valuations are starting to uh, uh, coalesce between the Challenger Banks and, uh, and the Main Street High Banks as well, which is a, is a pointer to the, the increasing uh, health or viability of the latter. Um, what is the Challenger Bank as well? Because uh, we're even talking now about uh, well, there's, there's uh, speculation that uh, Amazon are going to come into the market, start offering current accounts as well. Well, I saw that. That's something that gets picked up in, in your in your feature, isn't it? Harris? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, it, yeah, this open banking regulation that's coming in this year should um, enable a lot more challengers to get involved in the market. But I mean, a cha- calling Amazon a challenger is <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I guess this is this is one of the key themes of the it the, is the, the feature is that the yeah Amazon might be a challenger in a small seg- sector or in a in a small segment of its business where it doesn't really have a presence. But it but the scale of these companies and the money they, they can, have means to they, drive can, what they, they can, want to do. they can make a very large impact very quickly, mm-hmm. which I think a lot of people are worried about. We have results from Metro a couple of weeks back, which look quite good. Um, Yes, their, their their rollout wasn't quite as quick as they thought. But uh, you, you better off speaking to Emma about this. But they, again, they they seem we to have, we have done. But you know, we're, we're wrapping up themes here. Themes, yes. Themes. Well, there there is a theme that I think we were going to touch on today, away from uh, the finance sector as well, and it's linked to um, announce announcements for WPP. Oh yeah, media, me, the media market. Yeah, yeah, because this is something I've been speaking to Megan Boxall about, and. Uh, she makes uh, the point in uh, her uh, review of WPP's results that um, she's somewhat at odds with, uh, or perhaps not at odds, but she questioned Martin Sorrell's um, analysis of uh, why they've revenues have basically flatlined for the, uh, the group and plus their uh, underlying operating profits down. He's putting the finger at uh, private equity and the influence of activist uh, shareholding groups as well, which is... Uh, caused a number of uh, companies, according to him, uh, to reduce their advertising spend um, as, as just a means of, uh, further means of cutting overheads. She doesn't really buy into that because uh, WPP's margins and, in fact, their uh, profitability has fallen behind some of their major overseas competitors. Uh, again, uh, this comes back to the fact, you know, perhaps WPP themselves uh, are doing something or have been slow to adapt to the changes in, in the advertising market. Uh, I mean, it's, it's almost certainly true, uh, sorry to interrupt, that there sorry. has been uh, something of a downturn in, in the display market. Yeah. You know, we, we do see that. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of ad spend is going digital, which again takes us back to the regulation feature yeah. uh, and, and the, uh, the dominance that, that groups like Facebook have over the advertising market now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it, so, so that, I mean, there is something, there is some truth in what they're saying. There has to be. Um, but I, th- I think you're right to point out the 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 the, uh, the adaptability thing because on the same page we have Tarsus, yes, which is essentially a, a media group. Yeah, well, th- that's right. But um, but their end of the market is, has been expanding in, in recent years. I mean, the, which is events basically. Yeah, but the. The difficulty there is there's so much competition in that particular space, which suggests that Tarsus, rather than WPP, have, have got their act together. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 when I first looked at the company, I was thinking, well, is, is this given, I mean, is this really an area for a public company to, um, to excel in? But, uh, um, they seem to have uh, allayed any of those doubts. What do you mean? Is it an area for? 
Well, just because there's so there's so many entrants in, in, in that market, and the, the barriers to entry aren't all that high. In terms really. of events, yeah, yeah, but, but but I guess if you know events, so you've got companies like uh, it was uh, was it ITE. Yes, you, you you know UBM Informer, and they've all but, been adapting their models, and events are, are taking up a bigger but, bigger but part. Even, of that. even the smallest um, media groups, and I know this from personal experience. I, I have a friend who owns a publishing company, and and the largest part of that now is down to events. And you know, five years ago, it was nothing in terms of the business itself. It's just that I thought there was so many entrants in the into that market that uh, it'd be very difficult to uh, excel. But I, I suppose where Tarsus um, uh, differs is that they've They've expanded this and uh, replicated this model internationally. And most of their uh, growth now, or the, uh, the fastest growing segments, are obviously in China and the emerging markets as well. Uh, and it's a relatively new phenomenon uh, there too. So they seem to be going actually from uh, strength to strength as the, uh, as the figures point out. Indeed, and we, we, we've obviously got the informal UBM uh, tie-up, which we talk about in the news section, or the potential type which we talk about in the news section it's an interesting sector maybe maybe WPP is just too big to move maybe it's like manoeuvring a, an ocean liner I mean you look at the the, the, the statutory figures are fine but it's, it's the underlying it's flat underlying figures and you wouldn't um, second guess Martin Sorrell. I mean, he's got unrivaled experience within the industry as well. But it is—it's like turning around a, a company that big. It's like turning around a super tanker. That you could never describe WPP as nimble. So perhaps that's just uh, comes back to the old argument about is small is beautiful. Absolutely. Having said that. Uh, there was another result I know you were keen to talk about, which was Rolls Royce. Now that is a big company, and yes. and 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 here is a company that that was going back what two years, in dire need of being turned around. And Warren East was brought in uh, as chief exec uh, from Arm. Yeah, and there was some scepticism that he would be able to achieve anything, but he seems to be he seems to be working some magic here. Well, yeah, I, th- I think uh, at an operating level, there's no doubt that he's made improvements. He's um, streamlined the uh, the business model. He's in the process of streamlining the business model. Unfortunately, that will uh, result in some uh, job losses later on this year. Uh, we don't know exactly where they're going to fall, but it was clear that uh, from a, a managerial perspective and from an operational perspective, uh, perspective, roles have become uh, slightly complacent, uh, and a lot of this is actually well. I think anyway, a lot of this is uh, is to do with their um, rather unique and uh, uh, obscure accounting policies, um, where they've been able to actually seemingly uh, generate uh, uh, enormous underlying profits that weren't. Uh, matched by their uh, cash flow. Oh, here we go, cash. I know you love your cash, so, Robbo. You're right to love your cash, by the way. Exactly. Well, uh, well, I was talking to Algie Hall about this because um, th- th- one of the main features looking at the results, and we can only gauge so much so far as with the introduction of um, IFRS 15. Oh, more regulation. Which, which came into force. <laughs> Very convenient for my future. It <laughs> came into force at the beginning of this year. And, and we've always had... Um, uh, I don't mind admitting this at all, but we've always had a great deal of difficulty in, in trying to uh, value Rolls-Royce uh, because of the the individualistic way that they, they book revenues. And it was, it's, it's been a criticism of, of, the, of the group itself, but it, was, it seemed so opaque in the past. Even when uh, aerospace uh, markets were in full throttle, we, we've... We've pulled back from recommendations on that basis. And you can understand why, because they, they're going to get to a, a tremendous amount of detail here. But to give you some idea, um, underlying uh, profit for the group in 2017 on the old reported basis was just over a, a, a billion. Uh, 
pounds. Uh, but when you look, uh, they give some indication of what, what it would have been under the, the new accounting treatment, and it comes in at £321 million. So there's a huge discrepancy there. Um, and they're guiding for the current year at about £400 million, give or take £100 million e- either side. So it gives you just some indication of um, uh, what the, the new treatment and, and the, the main treat, the areas it, it pertains to is revenue recognition. And we think that it'll actually it'll it'll firm up our understanding of the company and how they're performing, but also it'll help their uh, profit profitability and uh, cash flow to coalesce, uh, and you get a much better idea that that health of the company or the group going forward. So we're looking forward to that. But I would I would say to any of our readers, actually, if you've got a couple of days to spend and you and you've got shares in the company, it'd be really worthwhile going through uh, their results in, in detail. We, we've We've got a 400-word write-up in the magazine this week, but uh, I feel that we're probably going to have to publish uh, a DPS or a short feature just to try and get our head to it, because it doesn't doesn't just apply to them, obviously. It has major implications for uh, for tech companies, uh, engineering companies. Outsourcers. uh, Outsourcers as well, yeah. So, um, yeah. That's that's we knew this would happen, but I, I was very surprised by the numbers. Let's come back to the results. Let's let's move to the feature because uh, this seems like an opportune moment to talk about regulation. Yeah, because IFRS nine and fifteen are the uh, are the first regula- new regulations you talk about in the feature. So 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 first of all, explain to us what is this about? You know, in, in the main, and why have we written it? Why is it important that we understand this? We've basically seen a spate of regulations come in this year. A few have already come into effect in January and February. We've got more to come further on in 2018. As you mentioned, we had IFRS 9 and 15, which are international reporting standards, which came into effect in January. We've got a number of other regulations, including sort of telecoms regulations, which is broadband, and also energy price cap regulations. A lot of the regulations this year are actually centering on data, the processing and usage of data. This would be GDPR, which is a big exactly. one. Exactly. We're, we're having to deal with as well. Yeah. So basically any company that holds or processes um, customer or employee data will need to be preparing for GDPR, which comes into effect in May. Um, I mean, I think what's particularly interesting about this focus on data is that it almost seems that regulators have woken up all at once to the fact that the world has completely changed since 10 years ago when the global financial crisis was obviously the main issue on everyone's minds. And um, we have obviously seen a lot of regulations since then um, of the banks and of financial services companies. And, and some of that regulation is coming in this year, so, yeah. or has come in already, so MIFID two, yeah, so uh, open banking. Exactly. So MIFID two is another one that came in in January. That's been a long time in the, in the works and... Um, Emma Powell actually gave an interesting write-up of that within the feature. But open banking is another regulation that affects banks. came into effect on the 13th of January. Again, it relates to data and it's, there's a sort of interesting contrast almost between MIFID II open banking and GDPR coming in in May. They're all focusing on giving more control to the client or the customer in terms of their data and, and how it's being stored and analysed and, and displayed. But um, whereas MIFID II, among many other objectives, um, looks at sort of greater transparency around transactional data, GDPR really focuses on the minimal storage, absolute minimum storage of data, real care about how you're processing client data and and a huge focus on consent in terms of of data privacy. I'm getting the impression that that, that you're kind of concluding that there is perhaps some conflict in the various regulations. It seems that way. I mean, that... 
that's sort of my take. I, I think the regulators are aware that some people are concerned about a conflict. So particularly for banks, they have to have there has to be greater transparency around client data and for MIFID too. They they also under open banking need to open up customers' accounts to third parties, so challenger banks or startup tech companies. Is, is that to improve the, the speed at which you can switch your provider? Um, sort of. That's a part of it. It's basically to improve competition in the banking sector. Um, it's to create a better service for consumers so they can switch more easily if they want to, because I think there has been this this issue, I suppose, of people staying loyal to the same bank for a long time, not just because they think they've got great service, but because it's very difficult to switch. Mm -hmm. Or it feels like it would be very difficult to switch. Um, But also, you know, it really is about trying to get smaller tech companies and, and even retailers into the banking space which is what we touched on earlier in relation to Amazon. Yeah, so you would hardly describe them as a smaller player. No, and I mean... <laughs> so, but they might be in the banking space. Yeah, so. I think it'll be interesting to see how open banking plays out um, because, yes, I think the idea is really that uh, non-banks and you know a, a lot of small companies should be able to participate in, in the sector. But actually, some critics have said, well, big tech giants like Amazon, even Facebook will come wading in and, and they'll they already have so much customer data at their fingertips. This is the kind of this is the last thing they need in order to fully control what consumers do. Just control the consumer. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, eBay had PayPal, which is essentially a bank account for yeah. many years. Um, but yeah, it is interesting. Big tech, we have discussed mm-hmm. before uh, on this podcast in the magazine, but they are in the regulator's sites. They they've had a good run of doing what they like and that's potentially over. Mm. Well, I think a big part of that is because to begin with, I mean, you know, in sort of 2007, 2008, when a lot of other things were on regulators' minds, these companies obviously were big, but nowhere near as big as they are now. And Facebook was in its relatively early stages. It was really just a social media platform. And now it almost feels like they've been given free reign to do whatever they want, to enter into new sectors, to, yes, process and store customers' data and share that. And I think now we are seeing a lot of concern around what's actually happening to that data. I, I thought the interesting point you make here is that um, yeah, antitrust laws, so competition laws, have, mm. have been written to kind of stop one company becoming too big in one particular space. But when you've got a company that's already massive in an adjacent space, they, the, the, the laws don't actually protect the consumer from, from those kind of companies. Whereas no. it's actually preventing companies from responding to the threat of these very large, essentially, data, data managers. Yeah, and it, I mean, I think the, uh, the point around antitrust almost raises questions around what the regulator's objective actually is. You know, is it to encourage competition in the technology space in this instance? Is it to protect the consumer? Because to my mind, unless the likes of Amazon are sort of are broken up into different smaller companies, there's not uh, an, another sort of way to regulate Amazon as it is now. I mean, we talked earlier about it becoming a bank. It's also entering into pharmaceuticals. Healthcare. There's been talk of... Yeah, healthcare. Apple, I think Apple was potentially getting involved there as well. Yeah, and Apple, I think, has, a, has an app or various apps that allow you to sort of track your health data already. Um, again, all of this is powered by data. There haven't been many rules yet about how, they, how much data they can hold and well, store. Health data is surely the... Uh, I mean, yeah, beyond, beyond financial data, that's the one that most people are, are going to be very careful of. Well, it's one and the same thing. Yeah. Well, health, health data is. I mean, it's got huge... Well, I guess if you're talking about insurance. Well, uh, yes. <laughs> yes. And longevity, which actually comes in some of the results this week. And uh, Yes. The, the decline in longevity, actually, that we're starting to see. Uh, League in general. Yeah, League in general talk about this. Yeah. But we, we, we're, uh, we're going off on a tangent here. Let's get back to regulation. Get back to regulation. <laughs> back to regulation. Um, and antitrust. 
Yes. So, so it, you know, I mean, it's fascinating. It sounds to me like the rule it book is, needs to be rewritten. Yes, it, it does. And, and, I think, and, and potentially not in the way that they're, they're, they're currently rewriting it. No, and I think the question is, how are, how are they going to tackle these companies? Because, you know, for, up until now, companies like Amazon have been great for the consumer in many ways. You know, they everything is much easier and more convenient. You can order things online at the touch of a button and it'll arrive the same day if you want it to. But it is quite a frightening prospect, the idea that this massive company will know everything about you and other companies can't compete with it. And so ultimately there, there will be a monopoly unless something is done to stop it. Well, of course, they, they, they don't, uh, they're selling, the accusation is anyway, they're in, in many lines as well, that they sell below cost. Mm-hmm. They're just, in, at the moment, it's just a drive for market share and market dominance. And when that happens, then they've got complete pricing power. That's when consumers might feel the... Uh, the rough end of the stick. I'm, yeah. I'm absolutely convinced they did that in, in uh, the, the the sale of physical music. Yeah, absolutely mm. convinced. I might be wrong, but I've never seen any data. But as a consumer, that's what it feels like. I have no choice now. If I want to buy music, I have to go to Amazon. Yeah, and I think, although Whole Foods isn't yet something somewhere where everyone shops, I think that a lot of people had hoped when Amazon bought Whole Foods last year, the prices of this famously very expensive healthy supermarket would drop and as i'm as far as i'm aware they haven't yet so i think it'll be interesting to see what happens with that and whether they buy other supermarkets in turn that's a whole other tangent for it possibly indeed they certainly have some partnerships with uh with supermarkets in the uk yeah and it's opened its own automated supermarket in seattle as well oh my goodness (laughs) yes Uh, and world domination a part of this is because they've got uh, a huge negative cash conversion uh ratio as well so effectively they're They've got very little uh, capital invested up front, and um, they can just sell. And uh, well, basically, it's almost like uh, they're on a permanent short. Yeah, no, mm. it's, it's, it's a fascinating uh, uh, business. It's huge. We, we write a lot about about these the so called fangs, and I think I think you can't ignore them now. They are su- mm. such a large component of global indices in terms of the effect they have on on business businesses in you know the, the various markets in which they operate. I mean, look at the retail sector, which we cover in the news section this week. You know, mm. Debenhams, Mothercare, Carpet Right. Not saying Amazon sells carpet yet, but yeah, the effects on the do. high street. It might do. Quite <laughs> well. The effects on the high street has, is is be- becoming very very clear. Also, separate issues linked to censorship as well and uh, political in- influence too. Yeah, yeah. You can only think that regulation is on the way for these very large yeah. companies, and that 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 could you know it's something I think everyone needs to take into account when looking at their their exposures. Because you know, let's say you bought Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, you're exposed to these trends mm-hmm. and the potential regulation of this big sector, and that could be expensive. And I guess that's why we've written the feature is because this could have a financial impact. All this regulation, yeah, and not necessarily a bad impact. I mean, some of the companies that we look at really could benefit from the regulations that are coming into effect. Um, for example, I mean, I, I look at software companies specifically, but um, within the regulation, we look at com- software companies that might um, be able to provide services to companies that are going to be, going to be affected by regulation. So, for example, um, within MIFID, within our section on MIFID 2, we look at First Derivatives and Fidesa, which are companies that sort of help financial services institutions to streamline their accounting processes and prepare for regulations like MIFID 2. Mm, although Fidesa's are... Uh not going to be uh, on the UK market yeah, for very long. Well, Fidesa has just uh, received quite a large bid. I think it's £1.4 billion from um, a Swiss company called Temenos. And perhaps that's why. Yes, perhaps possibly. Perhaps that's why. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting... So, so basically, you're looking at uh, those companies that have been 
uh, potentially have this regulatory burden to deal with mm-hmm. where it might be a negative, but also, as you say, those companies that, 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 that can help companies deal with them. Yeah, absolutely. So regulation can be a good and a bad thing. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, although too much of it, as I concluded my editorial, is a bad thing. Regulation think- can be, become quite stifling. Yeah, I think that's a Winston... Oh, no, it sounds like a Winston Churchill quote. There is a Churchill quote oh, to that effect. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know that one. I have to yeah. look it up. Thank you, Harriet. It, it's a really interesting feature. Oh, Quite a long you. feature, isn't it? It's yeah. extremely long, yeah. Um, well, it was written with the help of um, a few companies' writers, so we've hopefully covered as many sectors as we could. But, yeah. Um, yeah, we have. I, I have to say, yeah. you know, despite being a long feature, I found it a really easy read. So, uh, oh, good. Well, that's a good thank thing. You. So, yeah, we'll have to revisit it uh, fairly regularly as well. I yes, I, I mean, think. that's one of the key takeaways from this feature, I think. You know, the pace of innovation is so fast now that it could be that every year becomes a sort of year of regulation from now on as regulators have to review all of the individual sectors and perhaps work more closely together with each other. Yeah, no, no, fast-moving markets, getting, mm. getting faster. Terrifying stuff. So thank you, Harriet, by the way. It's uh, fantastic. Let's quickly turn back to the results section. What have you looked at this week, Harriet, that you, uh, you thought was particularly noteworthy? Well, it's not actually a result, but um, I actually looked at WorldPay this week, um, which listeners might remember merged with the US payments giant Vantive. Which, which I found very confusing because I thought it disappeared and actually it has a secondary listing still on Yeah, it on, did on create market. a little bit of confusion because um, if you look online, it does, actually doesn't appear to be listed. But um, yes, WorldPay is now, its primary listing is in New York and its secondary listing is in London under a different ticker. And it, it merged with Vantiv. I think the merger completed at the beginning of this year. So Vantiv is one of the world's biggest payments giants and WorldPay obviously spun out of RBS a few years ago, went public. The deal was valued at £9 billion, I think. Um, so it was massive. Um, and this is something we've seen more widely in the payment sector, um, M&A activity. So, for example, PaySafe was also taken off the market by Blackstone and CVC a few months ago. Um, and we, we've touched on this in quite a lot of detail already. But I, for me, part of this is because of um, regulations around open banking oh, and the payment services directive. Regulation. I mean, it does seem like it's it's the t- all of these companies are sort of taking the opportunity to scale up as much as possible. But here, here is an example of a company that, that is benefiting from from changes in, in the way that the financial services market is regulated. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, WorldPay and Vantive together have huge technological advantage, but they're both long-standing payments companies with a huge customer base. And um, we learned, I think, at the end of last week, they had both done extremely well in their separate four-year results, but they also put out forecasts for their coming year. And um, we, I think we had been given an idea of what the revenue synergies might be. And so together, they're now expecting revenue for the quarter to the end of March to be somewhere between £825 million and £840 million, which is obviously massive for a payments giant. So that compares to about 570 million, which is what Vantip achieved on its own um, in the same period last year. So obviously a huge difference. For the full year, we're now expecting net revenue for both companies together to be somewhere between 3.8 and 3.9 billion dollars, which is massive. In yeah, the indeed. Of- we, in fact, it just, just reminds me that a couple of years back, or maybe even only a year ago, we 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 had a we put uh, payment services providers as a separate subsector in the FTSE 350 review, and then a year later had to dump it because there were none left. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a massively consolidating market. And, uh, it is, and I think we will see more consolidation in the space. And I think we'll also see potentially more IPOs with the new regulation that's coming into effect, whether it's just payments companies on their own or fintech companies that have a payments element. You know, I think the trouble is there are 
massive competitors like WorldPay. It's still called WorldPay even now, but it's merged with the bigger company. Vantive. But it's a brand that people know. It's a brand as, as a know. transactional brand, as a, as yeah, a customer. Exactly, and they work with banks. They work with. Uh, retailers, you know, it's a company they're all familiar with as a sort of supplier of payment services. And telcos as well. And telcos, yeah. yeah. I mean, they pretty much work with anyone that needs payments services. Um, so, yes, consolidation, I think, is the key theme. It is, I think we still consider it to be a sector, a sort of mini sector in its own right. But as you say, I think it seems to be going up and down in terms of the number of constituents. Of the yeah, well, certainly the size of them, as you say, you get, you're getting some smaller ones coming in as the larger ones get get gobbled up yeah and uh, you know there comes a point where you think maybe the smaller ones are just hoping to be taken up gobbled up at some point you yeah know, maybe the- maybe they should just put blockchain at the front of their name and uh oh yeah <laughs> which is one takes of the- back to regulation as well yes i mean that is yeah something else we look at i won't go into too much another, on that. One for another day <laughs> i think i mean talking of consolidation we've had a a bit of consolidation news on the market a bit of m&a news um the, the lead story this week is smurfit kappa yeah, yeah. Well, you used to cover, isn't it? Yeah, I used to cover it. I mean, this is no surprise really because the the industry itself, particularly in Europe, is uh, is it's still fairly uh, fragmented by comparison to uh, North America. Uh, Smurfit Cap is one of the largest names in the, Europe. The industry we're talking about, of course, is paper. Paper stroke packaging. Yes. Yeah. yeah so uh, it, it's it's not really surprising. This has uh, come along at all and. Uh, we d- we did have uh, m- more um, obvious uh, targets in in mind that I won't mention here uh, in the European segment, but I, Emma Powell makes the point as well that she thinks uh, this is probably underplayed this this initial bid, and so we would like to see other entrants coming into the market. We we have results from Mondi this week as well. Yeah, yeah, pretty pretty solid. Yes, yes, reasonably so. Though, I mean, they, they're having a bit of a difficulty with uh, input prices, and uh, and with most of these companies, uh, the, the key to their financial health is how quickly, how readily they're able to pass these through to their customer base. And um, Mondi has been uh, reasonably sec- successful in that regard. And obviously, there's more new M and A news this week. Uh, Laird has, uh, has found itself on the end of a takeover bid. Laird, being a sort of slightly struggling engineer, not not a, a deal that has, has, uh, has prompted as much opprobrium as the GKN bid situation, uh, which is which has been all over Parliament. Well, exactly. And there's uh, there's been a EGM today with uh, with Melrose. Uh, I've, I've got a report running on my desk when I get back, so I'll look through that. Uh, I can't remember the name of the uh, the potential. Uh, U.S. bidder for their driveline arm as well. Okay. No, it's 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 a it's a really strange story. That I just can't get my head around why this has become a, a political hot potato. I know, but probably even more so after your editorial. Yeah. Well, as you say, I'm. Uh, you know, Keith Joseph would have been proud. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the first editorial I've written in defence of free free markets in uh, takeovers, but there you go. Let's call it a day. There is so much in the magazine this week. If we if we start trying to pick out another result we'll be here all night so uh there's a couple of interesting things the readers about there's john barron's in this week looking at uh, some contrarian plays yeah you know that's a follow-up to his his, uh, his first column of the year which was uh, first column was it his first second column of the year which is about contrarian so unloved sex in the investment trust space which uh which are definitely worth a look uh commercial property among them Yep. Takes back to the thing Jonas wrote a few weeks ago. Alex it- Newman's taking a look at the refining segment within the oil and gas industry, which is uh, 
which has provided a bit of a, a fill-up for the, the industry uh, during the period when oil prices were uh, flatlining. The main dynamic there in refining is the uh, is the spread between WTI and Brent crude, and that's uh, narrowed a little bit, which makes it slightly less uh, profitable. But anyway, Alex has uh, gone into that in, in some detail. Indeed, and if you want more on oil and gas, uh, early next week, Alex, is a big report on oil and gas for yes. Alpha will be published. Yes, yes. It's a beast. It's you, a beast. Yeah. You haven't read it, have you? I, I haven't, but I'm looking forward to it. It's extraordinary. Um, so, yeah, that'll be... It, uh, that'll it just be... makes me feel in, inadequate anyway. Well, you are inadequate, Mark. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I just drew a rabbit. Uh, yeah, indeed, that's why. Um, we've got the top screen from Algie Hall. His, uh, his O'Shaughnessy screen, which is, uh, is, is another great performer. Lots in the personal finance and fun section this week uh, after their extraordinary effort with the ISA special last week. They're looking at emerging markets. It's our new deputy personal finance editor, Taha Lopandwala. Yes. yes. So, thank you, Harriet. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, uh, and uh, thank you all for listening. Playing by the new rules. Uh, why investors can't afford to ignore the wave of regulation coming this year. Picking up in uh, all good news agents. No snow this week, so no excuse for getting out there. Uh, or get online and subscribe. See you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.